This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. This week I caught up with Luke Harding. Now, Luke is a British journalist and foreign correspondent for The Guardian in the United Kingdom. He's covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine from inside of Ukraine. He's one of the world's leading authorities on Vladimir Putin's Russia. Now, having been based in Moscow for The Guardian, he was sanctioned by the Putin regime for his work uncovering corruption inside of Russia. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author in his new book, Invasion, Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival, was just updated to take into account latest developments in the war. It's a great book, an outstanding read. I encourage you to get a copy of it and read it. Um, now, I caught up with Luke for a chinwag about all things relating to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including what the world got wrong about Putin, what the world must do now to help Ukraine, and how this war might end. Also, most importantly, the global stakes of the conflict. Now, if you want to follow Luke's work, uh, I've put all his contact details in the show notes. Uh, big apologies to fans of the show. Obviously, been in Ukraine uh, over the last month, and so I've been a bit slack posting new episodes. Thank you for everyone reaching out to me saying, is the show going to have a new episode? It's nice to know that you guys are listening and following along. Um, uh, if you haven't seen any of my work, please check it out um, in the Australian Financial Review. Otherwise, um, thanks for tuning back in. Enjoy the episode. G'day, Luke Harding. Right. Welcome to okay. Diplomates, mate. How are you? Uh, Misha, I'm, I'm fine. Very, very, very good to talk to you. Now... You are currently in Lviv, uh, in Ukraine. Now, we caught up actually only just a few days ago uh, after I left Kiev. But um, I thought a good place to start is, you know, so much happening and, and new information by the minute. But I thought an interesting place to start here would be sort of the status of the war and particularly how you see where the war is right now, the counteroffensive. We've had the Kirsch Bridge uh, being attacked by someone. And, uh, you know, there's also reports of a large Russian build-up in the northeast. So where do you see the counteroffensive and the war more generally right now as we sit at this moment? Well, thank you. I, I mean, I mean, the, the war is continuing. Uh, and I think <clears throat> neither narrative, the sort of Kiev narrative and the Moscow narrative is, is quite right. I, I mean, the expectation this summer was that Ukraine would take back significant amounts of territory, repeating what it did last autumn when it when it won back Kherson or the right bank of Kherson province and also did this sort of sweeping stunning counteroffensive in the northeast and kicked the Russians out from almost all of Kharkiv Oblast uh, and in fact uh, I, last week I was uh, on the Zaporizhia front the sort of southern front line in a place called Velika Novosilka um, and it, really in a month the Ukrainian brigade I was with had gone forward about five kilometers and and what what they said was or two things. First of all, that the, the, the Russians have, in, have entrenched, they've dug the most extensive fortifications we've seen anywhere on the planet for decades, and they've laid minefields beyond the Soviet norm, which was already pretty generous. And it, it's, it's proving very, very hard for Ukrainians to move forward. But the other point is that that you know the Russian monster is still big and, and potent, and and what the commanders, the Ukrainian commanders I was speaking to, were saying is that the Russians have more artillery, uh, they have attack helicopters, um, uh, which is very hard for the Ukrainians to shoot down, uh, and of course, Ukrainian side doesn't have any aircraft. I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky has been asking for for months for F-16s for uh, modern uh, NATO standard warplanes, and he hasn't got them, and so. Given those limitations, it's it's proving a slog. And meanwhile, as you say, uh, around Kupinsk, the, the Russians have massed 100,000 people and are actually making gains. Uh, they're they're pushing forward there, and Ukraine is is trying to to hold on. So it's a it's a kinetic battle. Uh, it's ebbing and flowing. Both sides are seeking to advance, and I think the bottom line is that the war is not finishing anytime soon. It's an interesting, uh, I don't think a lot of ex people expected the Russians to attempt a counteroffensive of their own. They had a, a very big push over the wintertime trying to take 
uh, Bakhmut at enormous cost. And in the end, they did, but in the, they didn't really advance very far at all. So to, to be throwing 100,000 troops at, at the northeast is quite interesting because in the south is where Ukraine's been focusing a lot of its efforts. And you, you mentioned the, the mining and the trenches. I mean, the way it's been described to me by various people, some of the most intense fighting of the war to date and and also um, the the way that the Russians have dug themselves in is actually quite extraordinary. It's sort of a World War One type uh, trench line that we haven't really seen in, in a long, long time. So it'd be yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how the conflict evolves. And as you say as well, yeah, the Ukrainians have been praised for their uh, I suppose innovative approach to battle, but the Russians have learned a lot. Even the Ukrainians concede that and so the combination of mining and also as you mentioned the attack helicopters but also drones the use of drones is extraordinary you know hundreds of thousands of drones being deployed on the battlefield certainly at close range and so uh i i'm i'm really not sure where it's headed though i still think the russians are getting degraded and so i think at some point even there sheer size will start to feel the pain of the degradation of their forces, but it remains to be seen. So, you know, we can speculate about where that's all headed and in the end, mate, we'll be wrong in about 48 hours. But I actually wanted to go back to the beginning of the invasion. You're someone that's got a long expertise in Russia, Putin and Eastern Europe more generally. And I want to ask you where you were surprised about the fact that Putin invaded it to the scope that he did or in many ways, was this the logical step for Putin's worldview um, of a sort of dominant Russo ethno-nationalism? I've got to be, admit, I got it wrong. I didn't think we would see a full-scale invasion. So I'm curious for your take as someone who has long history in this in this space. Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've written a book about um, the war uh, published by, by Faber and, and available in Australia called Invasion. And my, my wife jokingly when I was writing it in between really kind of frantic, grueling stints in Ukraine last year, um, gave it another title. I, I, Misha, am I allowed to swear on your podcast or not? Absolutely, mate. <laughs> well, okay, so she said my book, instead of calling it Invasion, should have been I fucking told you so. Uh, <laughs> right. because, I mean, essentially, I, I, you, I, I mean, if we, if we go back a, a, a bit, I spent four years in Moscow as the Guardian's bureau chief there between 2007 and 2011. Um, and I arrived, you know, having been a foreign correspondent in places like Delhi and Berlin, done wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, thinking naively that Russia was a was a semi-democracy that was slowly but inexorably going in a kind of progressive, modern direction. And in fact, of course, the reverse was true. What was happening was that um, after a brief democratic period in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin, Russia was reverting or, or perhaps you know, more accurately being driven by Putin and his kind of KGB cronies back to a sort of Soviet authoritarian style government. And the country was getting darker and darker. And it w was really the world's foremost spy state. I mean, I, I was chased around Moscow by strange young men wearing black leather jackets. We, we had a series of mysterious break-ins that are flat and were advised by the British embassy that, that 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 we were bugged. You know, I was living there with my family, wife and kids and and including the bedroom where there was video. Um, and all of this kind of culminated with my being kicked out of the country in 2011. I was the first Western reporter to be to be thrown out um, since since the end of the Cold War. Although, of course, you know, for, for Putin and, and his circle, the, the Cold War is still the Cold War. It's it's Cold War Two or Cold War Redux or you know, a, a, another go at it. Um, and, and so basically I had a kind of private window into just how uh, how evil, I think is the word, and, and crazed the Russian leadership is. I mean, they live in a, a fantastical place uh, where um, kind of basic axioms, are, 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 you know, Russia's greatness, um, uh, its exceptionalism, and, and also its victimhood. That Russia is a permanent victim of the West, which right. seeks to do encircle and devour it. And so, so basically, having done uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea and spent time in the East in 2014, where where the, the Kremlin did did a kind of almost a sort of trial run for 2022, uh, then a covert takeover. Um, I, I wasn't at all surprised. In fact, I, you know, I really thought 
in late 2021 that something big was coming. And that's why I went back to Ukraine. I went to the front line in, in the East, spent time with Russian troops. And in January 2022, went to Mariupol, which, which seemed very vulnerable. Uh, on, on February the 24th, where, when the full-scale invasion started, I was in Kiev. Right. And I'm actually, this is not a visual medium, so this is a very bad way of doing this, uh, Luke, but I'm actually holding a copy of your book, Invasion, which is a great read for anyone uh, that's listening. You should definitely get a copy of it. It's a, it's a fantastic ripping uh, account of the, I guess, the, uh, the, the first months of the war. And you've, I know you've updated it recently. But in terms of Putin then, you, you, know, you got kicked out of the country in 2011, so you were on to him quite early in terms of, the way that he was using the Russian state to enrich himself and others and his cronies and also just the general creeping authoritarianism. But, yeah, in which case then, what did the world get wrong about Putin? Now, you could see it. So then how is it that we got from, you know, Putin in 2000 becomes president to Putin invades uh, Ukraine in 2022 fully? Well, of course, he commenced the invasion in 2014 with the annex- illegal annexation of Crimea and, you know, the so-called separatist wars in Donbass, which is really just an invasion. How did the world get it wrong and what should have been done differently in your view? It, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think the answer was that most Western leaders, Western governments, including the British government, Australian government, particularly the Americans, um, j- just made wrong, wrong conclusions. And, and, and failed to, to understand that the strange worldview of, of, of Putin and, and his team. I mean, the assumption from the uh, Obama administration certainly um, was that, uh, you know, Putin could be sort of negotiated into some kind of reasonable place where, where yes, uh, Russia had, had demands of its own, had costs of its own, um, but, but it, was, it was possible to kind of accommodate Russia in some way. And we, we saw this playing out in the kind of frantic days of early 2022, where, when, for example, Emmanuel Macron flew to Moscow um, as Russian troops were massing on, on Ukraine's borders and, and thought, I mean, I mean, he's a brilliant guy, but thought with his charm, with his persuasiveness, mm. with his powers of, of ratiocination, he, 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 could, he could get Putin to call off the invasion. And of course, Putin, Putin wasn't. Putin is not interested in, in mutual solutions. Putin is a classic zero-sum thinker whose whose worldview is is essentially a nineteenth-century worldview, where, where big powers are entitled to spheres of influences, spheres of influence, and if they so wish, can can gobble up smaller powers. Um, and and we know from his essay published that fateful summer in 2021 that that he never considered Ukraine to be a country or a state or a people. That essentially it was a kind of lost colony or province that, that he had to redeem and restore to, to, to Mother Russia. And, and he's in a, in a fundamentally rational place. And, and, you know, the West was thinking, well, you know, if he does this, there'll be sanctions, it'll be bad for Russia, it'll be isolated. Putin doesn't care. He is in a strange messianic uh, realm where he's thinking about his role in history, how he shapes up uh, versus Peter the Great or Stalin or Ivan the Terrible. Um, and nothing was going to dissuade him, and and that that is still the case. His plan is un- unchanged. He wants to exterminate Ukraine, to de-Ukrainize Ukraine, to basically bring everybody in it under his dominion. And and the choices for Ukrainians are pretty stark. They can become good Russians who love their czar, or they can be annihilated. That those are the choices. And and so this is a classic war of conquest. It's as if we've fallen through a wormhole, and are now in the, a kind of 19th century version of Europe, but with drones. <laughs> and, and so in which case, um, you know, do you think that, uh, you know, had the world have acted maybe in 2014, you know, when the annexation happened, do you think we could have averted where we've gotten to? Or do you think in the end, basically Putin, the logic of his position would have inevitably led him down the path of something like this. I mean, my general view of dictators is they really only understand strength, right? So they kind of take that Leninist view of, you know, probe with bayonets, if you feel steel, withdraw, if you feel mush, push. And so, you know, unfortunately, even if they are well-intended approaches to wanting to secure peace, fundamentally 
uh, you know, tolerating bad behavior and it begets worse behavior. Um, and so I just wondered, do you think there's, we went through these check posts as we've gone along over 20 years. Is there any one moment you think had they done something here, we might have a different history or do you think this was just an inevitable project that Putin was going to do? And also kind of the inevitable consequence of being in charge for a quarter of a century, no one ever telling you anything you don't want to hear. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a good, it's a good sort of, it's it's a good what if uh, question. I mean, I think I think possibly. Um, I mean, basically, your analysis is right that that essentially what Putin Putin has done since two thousand when he became president is do egregious things, do do impossible things, and wait for a reaction from the West, which, you know, generally speaking, does not come or or is minor. Uh, uh, or, or, or actually is conventional, like the expulsion of Russian diplomats. So, so we, we, we've seen all these kind of fell deeds. I mean, beginning with locking up perhaps Mikhail Khodorkovsky, then, then the invasion of Georgia, which was a kind of short five-day war I covered in the summer of 2008 when I, when I was on the front line in Georgia. Uh, and um, then also, you know, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, Russian dissident in London, about whom I wrote a book called A Very Expensive Poison, you know, with Putin basically sending assassins to, to roam around carrying a small nuclear bomb in a tube, which is how they killed him with radioactive polonium. Um, and, you know, back then, this is a sort of story I, I, I follow very closely and which haunted my time in Moscow. The UK government chucked out a handful of diplomats, Russian diplomats from London, and that, and that was it. No, no kind of further response. And so Putin concluded, based on the evidence, that, that the West was weak, divided, uh, suffering from a kind of entropy, or it was in a terminal decline in the same way that the Soviet Union was in the late 1980s, and that he could prevail. Um, and I think that the greatest proof of that was what happened in 2014, when he annexed Crimea, a territory the size of Belgium, and the US and others slapped a few sanctions on 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 sort of mid-level Crimean officials, and that was it. Basically, he got away with it, and also bit off a huge chunk of Eastern Ukraine at the same time. And and so by 2022, his expectation was that the, the West would roll over once more, as it had done in the previous two decades. He his troops would sweep into Kiev. He would install a puppet regime. And yes, we wouldn't like it. Australia wouldn't like it. UK wouldn't like it, but we would suck it up. I mean, he was wrong, actually, on this occasion. But but up until that point, the West had behaved feebly. It had been accommodationist, even appeasing. Uh, and now we are left with the biggest war in Europe since 1945. Yeah, and I actually think that it took Ukrainian bravery really to turn the whole thing around. I think had Putin been right and he managed to capture uh, Kyiv in 24 hours or three days or however long he planned it to be, then I think likely it would have been a repeat. I can't imagine that the sanctions would have been anywhere near strong enough and he would have got away with it. So it's the bravery of Ukrainians that finally uh, you know, got the world to do what was necessary from probably from the get-go. But on that topic of, of Putin, the West, and, and motives for the war, you know, one of the sort of stories or you know, the kind of the – excuses or rationales for Putin's war is this encroachment of NATO upon Russia after the Cold War. Yeah. Do you give any credence to this? Do you think that, you know, that uh, Russia was provoked? Or, yeah, my personal view is that it, it sort of minimises Russia's agency in the world and, and every other country for that matter, essentially that the only country that has agency is the United States and to a lesser extent its allies and everyone's responding to that rather than having their own motives, but curious for your take on that narrative of NATO expansion equals Russia having to invade Ukraine. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it basically, is nonsense. I mean, it's a kind of grudge trope that that, that Putin has been repeating forever. But it, it's not surprising that that countries, for example, in the Baltics or in Eastern Europe, that were either either subjugated and disappeared um, after the Red Army. Um, came in in the Second World War, all became client states like sort of you know Poland, Hungary, uh, Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, and and so on. That they would want security guarantees against a, a, an aggressive Russia in the future. So um, uh, it's not about NATO. I mean, Putin has 
scarcely kind of raised an eyebrow at the fact that Finland and, and soon Sweden have joined NATO. So it's not really about NATO expansion. I mean, that, that's just a pretext for what is essentially a kind of colonial or recolonial project to take over Ukraine again, as I was saying, to sort of take back land that, that, that Putin considers to be historical Russia. Uh, and it's just a way of kind of selling it domestically. And, and I think, you know, what, what's interesting, what strikes me always about the Kremlin's rhetoric, it, it, its very favorite idea is the idea of, um, in Russian, it's a zerkalna advert, advert, which means a kind of mirror answer. In, in other words, Russia presents everything it does as reactive, never proactive. I mean, I mean the Kremlin, Putin, are the, they are the authors of nothing. Right. They, they don't do anything. Uh, so everything is always a reply. You, you know, so, so they invade Crimea. Uh, uh, when they take Crimea, they invade Ukraine. Then, you know, this week we, we, we see the Ukrainians striking the Kerch Bridge. And then Putin is promising an answer to this, this uh, unprovoked act of aggression by Ukraine. Well, you know, Russia has been bombarding Ukrainian cities, killing thousands of civilians, destroying metropolises like Mariupol. And, and that, that, that's a kind of that, that's, an, that's a not deed as, as Russia sees it. But anything the enemy does or the neo-Nazis and Vatican's do, that, that's a deed. And it, it's become this way of thinking which just tries to formalize the idea of, of, of Russian victimhood. And the, the reason this is so, so sort of dangerous, if you like, is, is most Russians believe it. They support the war. They believe that Putin is, is, was, was forced to invade Ukraine and that this is an existential battle for Russia's survival rather than a war of choice and, and a colonial war, which is essentially what it is. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the Russian ability to use a whataboutist narrative on almost anything, you know, and just going back decades, you, know, you, you, you say Russia's invaded Ukraine, well, the United States invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, what about this? Well, then there was some issue in 1991. Of course, they, they always gloss over any of their own agreements that they've breached, and Putin is a serial breaker of deals and you know, essentially one of the most unreliable interlocutors you could ever hope across the table from you. I actually wanted to, you, you mentioned inside Russia right now, you've talked about Russian supports for the war. Of course, a few weeks ago now we had the coup that wasn't a coup uh, by Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner group. I'm curious for your take on that more generally and then whether or not what that tells us you know, as a veteran Kremlin watcher, what does that tell us about the Putin regime? Is Putin secure or not secure and do you think it's a prelude to something more or is that actually going to be a way for him to tighten up his ship more generally going forward? Well, uh, I, I was in Ukraine when, when the, the, the coup or the mutiny um, happened. I, I, I just arrived and U Ukrainians for, for a brief moment, for a few hours, were utterly jubilant. I mean, I mean they were, they were right. sharing memes on social media of popcorn, champagne, etc. And And I think their hope was that this coup would last longer that Prigozhin would go to Moscow, that there'd be fighting and, 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 and more disorder. Whereas actually in the end, Putin struck a deal with Prigozhin and Prigozhin kind of turned around. And um, I mean, I think what, what's interesting is that that, that whole uh, episode shows just how weak the Kremlin is, in fact, that right. um, for all of Putin's talk about stability and strength and, and you know the projection of force and the endless parades are, are across the cobbles of red square where russia is showing off its nuclear missiles um that this is this is a sort of dysfunctional regime and and of course it, it i think it enjoys a degree of popularity but but i think that popularity is 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 rather thin and i'm not sure how sincere it is and it's largely the product of conditioning and zombification by Russian state TV, where, where Putin is the 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 all doing um, benevolent action hero that regardless of what's going on in the world, the top story is always Vladimir Putin. I mean, it, it's basically uh, a personality cult. It's, it's very familiar from the 20th century, uh, what we've got at the moment. But actually how many people really love Putin? I, I'm not so sure. And I, I think for me, the most sort of telling image from that extraordinary 24 hours was when Prigozhin and, and his Wagner fighters um, left Rostov-on-Don, the southern town in southern Russia, 
And he was fated like some kind of bald rock star with people wanting selfies, <laughs> shaking his hands, um, congratulating him, chanting Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. Um, and you look at his videos and Prigozhin is everything that Putin isn't. I mean, he, I mean he's a thug and he, he's a sociopath and you wouldn't want him near any kind of government, but, but he's clever. Uh, he can talk to the common man. He's quite florid. He, he compared um, Gerasimov, the Russian commander-in-chief, in one video I watched, to, to a noisy fishwife. He's been at war with Sergei Shoigu, uh, uh, Russia's defense minister. And he's a sort of pretender. I mean, he's brave. I mean, he goes to Bakhmut. Um, he appears in fatigues. Whereas Putin, by contrast, has spent the last sort of couple of years hiding in a bunker from, from COVID. And right. I think he's terrified of assassination. So, so I think... The Kremlin is, is weakened, it seems. For now, the regime is secure. But when it does come down, if it does come down, it'll come down very quickly. Do you think it's likely this year? Like, they put you on the spot. I mean, I, you know, anyone that's read my work, I've been, you know, before the Prigozhin thing, I, I, I sort of saw that uh, not the Prigozhin be the man, but he'd be potentially one of the people to make a move on Putin. But I just thought overwhelmingly the logic of removing Putin is so overwhelmingly clear for those that inside Russia want their lives back. Now, I'm not talking about good people, I'm talking about elites that have stolen Russia's wealth, but they've now had their lives taken away from them that know that this war is a disaster. There's no way out for Russia with Putin in charge, but there might be a way out for Russia without Putin. And that logic, if it makes sense to me, it has to make sense to a lot of people, including Putin, right, which is why he's so hard to kill, as you mentioned. But... Can you see it happening sooner rather than later? Or do you think it's, you know, he's going to be able to hang on for as long as he needs? I, I, I don't see a, a Pasku scenario. And the, 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 the problem is, Misha, we've, we've all watched this sort of wonderful film by Armando Iannucci, The Death of Starlet. Uh, <laughs> Great movie. Where, where, you know, Stalin is, uh, Sean Bean is, is playing Zhukov, going, oh, I fucking fuck the Nazis, I can fucking deal with this situation. Uh, and, you know, Stalin dies, and then Barry is taken out of the courtyard and shot, and so on and so on. I, I don't think any of this is going to happen, unfortunately. I think, I think Putin, I mean, he sees himself as, as the sort of supreme arbiter-in-chief who's used this tactic very successfully of divide and rule, to, to ensure that various Kremlin factions fight each other rather than him and that everybody is permanently off balance. Um, but he, he's surrounded by loyalists. He has an enormous security apparatus. I mean, the FSB during the coup failed to defend him, actually. And the FSB right. in Rostov, they just, they just kind of barricaded the door of their office building and, and um, you know, just checked their mobile phones. They didn't actually try and save the the, the, the state. But nonetheless, I, I I don't see him being overthrown. And I think he thinks he can carry on indefinitely. I mean, it, he, he, his plan seems to be to live forever. <laughs> I mean, there's no no successor in sight. I mean, Medvedev, who was, who was a titular president when I was there, who wasn't really president, has become this kind of ranting, angry, allegedly drunk uh, idiot who, who just drones on about how Russia's going to nuke the world. Um, so, so there's no, there's no successor. Um, and the problem is that, that anyone who might take over probably would, would have the same complexes, the same imperial neuroses as, as Putin. O although, you know, if there is a change in power, if Putin does leave, the elite will definitely kind of fight each other because there are billions at stake. There's there's power. There's all the stuff that's been stolen over many many years, and that might present some opportunities for Ukraine on the battlefield. Yeah, look, I, I just see that the thing that's and you, you touch on this at the beginning is just extraordinary that um, for all the fear and all the control that the Kremlin has uh, exerted over Russia, that essentially a private army could capture a major city and Rostovendon is a million people city. It's not like some backwater. Um, it's a major military town and then drive 800 kilometers up the road unstopped. Essentially the entire apparatus of state, the people, everybody just sat and watched. Um, and there's this, yeah, there's a saying in Russia about being loyal to the nearest gun. And I think that was very much playing out during that. So that to me was quite revealing. I just wonder whether or not, you know, one of the things that perhaps might not have tipped it, Prigozhin's ways. One, he didn't really seem to have a plan, but two, that he's hated by the senior brass, right? He's popular amongst 
the ordinary punter class and some of the lower uh, officer levels, but because he's been criticising the senior leadership so much, they kind of hate him. So anyway, look, we'll wait and see to see what happens. But um, I was wondering whether or not you had a view. Now, we just had a NATO meeting talking, obviously, about Ukraine, but the topic of China came up and a lot of people seek to link these two conflicts, or not two conflicts, a potential conflict around Taiwan and the Chinese Communist Party, the war in Ukraine, but also a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. Do you see the stakes of this conflict in that way, or is this really a European affair, you know, an historic matter? How, how do you actually define the conflict more generally? Clearly it's a land war in Europe, but are there bigger stakes at play here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think this is the most significant conflict of the 21st century and, and really will determine the future of the world order. I mean, that's certainly how Putin sees it. He sees it as a civilizational struggle between good and evil, with the Russians being the good guys, uh, and an attempt to not only kind of reabsorb Ukrainian lands, but also to bring Ukrainians back uh, under, under Russia's sort of political power, but also sort of spiritual embrace. So it's a, it's a war for orthodoxy. It's got a a metaphysical dimension, an end of days element with the patriarch, Russian patriarch, blessing Russian soldiers um, and Russian sort of state TV, which is full of propaganda, castigating a decadent, um, gay-loving West. I mean, that, that's how Russia sees it. And I think actually for the Western coalition, including Australia, which has been surprisingly resilient and united so far, actually in the face of Russian aggression, I think it's understood that it's a war for, for democracy and the international order, that essentially if Russia prevails in Ukraine, first of all, Putin will keep going. He'll try and do Moldova next or the Baltics or attack Poland or, or um, link up with Kaliningrad, this, this slightly um, anomalous exclave um, uh, on the Baltic, which doesn't have a land corridor with Russia. Um, essentially, he, he believes that Eastern Europe should either be literally under Russian control or, or part of a zone of influence, which is which is clearly not the case. So, so it, it, it's it's a struggle of values, and yeah, I mean, I mean, however imperfectly the West has behaved over the last two decades, the alternatives are are, are nihilism and death, destruction, rape, subjugation, torture. All of the all of the stories I've been reporting from Ukraine over the last sort of year and a half. Uh, and, and reporting out of areas that the Russians occupied, places like Bucha and Mariupol, where I, 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 I saw the worst stuff I've seen in, in 25 years as a foreign correspondent, where, where Russian soldiers were literally rounding up guys, torturing them, and then shooting them in the back of the head. I mean, these are innocent civilians. I mean, I mean it's, it's a horror that we haven't seen since the 1930s and 1940s. So the corollary of all that is that Russia has to be stopped has to be stopped and and the 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 west has to keep going and and you know the the, the uk and and also australia i mean i mean i'm i'm still a bit amazed that there's no australian ambassador in kiev it seems to me that australia is a very significant power I, I, every country could do more but i think australia in particular could do more to help ukraine ukraine to win yeah i don't it's peculiar to me that australia's not open its uh, embassy given almost every other country, as I'm not aware of any others that haven't. Now, we've talked a bit, we've talked a lot about Ukraine, but in terms of Russia itself, is there a way back for this country, given everything that's happened, the war crimes that have been committed, not just by Putin, but by Russians and in the name of the Russian state? What sort of reckoning is required here? It's just horrific what has happened to that country over the last well, really, it's had a very checkered history going right back to 1917 and perhaps before that. But given you sort of make comparisons, really, and you've got to be careful about making them, but they actually are apt to what we saw done by the Nazis on the battlefield in other ways, what sort of reckoning is required? And, and is there a way back for the Russian people and the Russian nation if and when this war ends? I, I think that comparison is valid. Uh, a few years ago, people kind of bolted it, but but it's clear to me, as someone who's, who's spent a long time in Ukraine and, and has witnessed, oh, so many war crimes that that what we're seeing is 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 fascism. It, it's Russian fascism, a Russian inflated fascism, 
um, where the, the the project in Ukraine is essentially genocidal. It's it's to just kill Ukrainians, or as I was saying, turn them into good Russians. Um, and it, it, it's it's actually quite astonishing in its brazenness and its um, a, a, a ambition. And so ha- how you would how you would sort of nudge Russia, you know, in a more democratic direction, uh, how you could have a reckoning, how, how Russia could get off of these myths of, of greatness and exceptionalism and victimhood, which are very, very, very strong. I mean, I, I was um, reading and reviewing a book recently by Mikhail Zigar, who's a Russian political journalist called War and Punishment, which is about 350 years of Ukrainian-Russian relations. And, and he, he describes... Russia's addiction to imperial thinking is as 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 that of a drug addict, actually, someone with a severe heroin pop problem. And he writes, it is time to get off the needle. Uh, how Russians get off the needle, I don't know. And I've talked to to Ukrainians, to intellectuals, to philosophers, and to writers, including Victoria uh, Amilina, who was killed last month sitting in a pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk when the Russians dropped a Iskandar missile uh, on her and other people, about 40 people died. Um, she was she was brilliant. And, and you know, I'm, I'm so sorry and, and saddened and kind of appalled at, at her death. We, we did an event together at the London Book Fair in spring, and she was asked this question about Russia. And basically she said, uh, I, you know, I have no headspace to to consider, you know, w- w- what might happen to Russia after Russia's defeat. And and I'm sort of some of the same. I mean, I know what should happen. I mean, there should be a kind of West German style process of lustration, of of purging the the security services, of democratization, of of punishment, accountability, Nuremberg. But I suspect none of this will happen. And I think the place we're at really is. Instead of trying to think imaginatively about Russia's future, is is just containment. That that old Cold War doctrine of the 1940s, uh, you know, the long telegram. I think we're in a place of near containment where we just do our best to help Ukraine win and just contain further and future acts of Russian aggression. And so then do you see, you know, other dictators drawing lessons from what does or doesn't happen in Ukraine because clearly, yeah, Putin, I think whatever lessons he's learned, he doesn't want to internalize it. Right. But, um, the, the question I have is, uh, you know, do you think there'd be a problem or do you think, you know, essentially if Putin was allowed to prevail here in Ukraine, do you think we're likely to see more conflicts of this type in other parts of the world? One that comes to mind, Xi Jinping, Taiwan, but there'd be others also. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a kind of China guy. I haven't been to Beijing, but, but my sense is that Xi Jinping is probably a bit chastened by, by, by what happened uh, in Ukraine. I mean, it hasn't been a, a, a brilliant success for Russia. And the, the plan was to take Moscow in three days. Sorry, the plan was for Moscow to take Kiev in three days. That, that didn't work. I mean, Russia was forced to withdraw from the Kiev region, went backwards for, for much of last year, and is now furiously trying to hang on to the territory it seized and perhaps kind of claw some more back. Um, uh, you know, the sanctions, I mean, they haven't really destroyed Russia's war effort, but but they haven't been great either for the Russian economy and for the Russian people. And and so I, I think Beijing has a clearer understanding of what might happen were it to attack Taiwan, which is not to say it won't happen, but I, I suspect it won't happen immediately. And, and just finally, um, on on the relationship between between the Russians and the Chinese, I mean that they, they proclaim eternal friendship and and loyalty and so on. But this is very much an unequal relationship where Russia is the junior partner, the lesser player, um, with with few other strategic options or or, or friends. And I think I think probably privately that the Chinese are actually enjoying Russia's discomfort. At, and failure, because of course, all of that strengthens China, particularly in the Pacific region and uh, in in the Far East, which used to be Russia's Far East, used to be Chinese back in the 19th century, is currently Russian. But that's also another big fear in Moscow that that sooner or later the Chinese might try and get that territory back. Well, it's actually an interesting point. You, you mentioned as a junior partner, they they went into perhaps as borderline co-equal partners at the beginning of the war, junior partner. I actually think. 
increasingly, given the reliance of Putin's Russia on China, is that they're becoming a client state of the Chinese, which is quite extraordinary because if you understand the psychology of the Russians or you know, during the Soviet era, the, the, the Chinese were considered the junior partner, looked down upon, they were an offshoot um, uh, of, the, of the Communist Party out of Moscow. And so for that to have been reversed to the extent that it has um, is a humiliation really for the Russians. And I actually think that's a bit of an underappreciated factor in all this about, again, my pocket theory around Putin getting pushed out is the degree to which he's handing the country over to Chinese control would be very disconcerting to the Siloviki that run the run Russia in terms of, you know, I, I agree with you in, in terms of the lessons that Xi Jinping would draw from it, which is why I make the argument uh, why it's in Australia's national security interest, parking up the values, parking up it being the right thing to do in terms of helping Ukrainians fight this war of aggression um, against them by the Russians is that sending our weapons to Ukraine is the best and cheapest and safest way for Australia to avoid there ever being a war in our region, because if Ukraine can defeat Russia on the battlefield, then I think we go a long way to ensuring there are no further wars by the dictators because they'll say, you know what, invasions don't pay. Uh, they end up, you end up losing um, a lot of blood and treasure and potentially, uh, the, depending on what happens to Putin, the regime itself. So in which case I kind of wanted to draw you to a political question. You know, we've had NATO we're approaching you know, past the 500-day mark. We're approaching the 18-month mark of this war. Are you frustrated or do you think there is a un, sort of a, a lack of willingness to send all the weapons that Ukraine needs at the pace that it needs them to win this war? It seems often, you know, when I talk to Ukrainians, they say, you know, why, do you, why does it take something bad for you to send us the weapons that we need? You know, eventually it's like, oh, you can't have HIMARS and you get HIMARS, you can't have this and you can have this, but it's always after the fact when perhaps they could have made more of a difference earlier on. Uh, do you see, you know, essentially the politics of it? Why is it happening? Why is it not happening the way that it should? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Western countries have been behind the curve and and they sort of tend to respond to yesterday's problem rather than today's problem right and, and on the one hand the biden administration has become a kind of indispensable you might say existential part of ukraine i mean that they've given more military and security assistance than anybody else about 10 times more i mean i mean that the, the world's foremost superpower i would say still for now uh 2023 um and that military assistance has been crucial but it, it, it's it's been too little and too late. I mean, this is what Ukrainian commanders told me last week. And you sort of feel that Ukraine has been a victim of incrementalism, as you, as you suggest, that yes, they got they got HIMARS in the summer of 2022. And one of the reasons the counteroffensive is not really going very well is that they haven't got any aircraft. And Biden, I think yesterday, finally approved the training of Ukrainian pilots for F-16s, which won't arrive on the battlefield until next year at the earliest. Right. And if they have them now, they could be going forward. You know, if they had long-range artillery, uh, which which the British have supplied in the shape of Storm Shadow missiles, but the Americans haven't yet, that they could knock out more logistics bases. And, and there's also this kind of ludicrous uh, calculation from the Biden administration that, that, you know, Ukrainians cannot strike into Russia because that might lead to escalation or nuclear war, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the problem is that the Russians are using their vast territory as a platform to strike Ukraine with, with hypersonic missiles, with S-300s of the kind that I heard in Kharkiv, fired from Belgorod, you know, landing in the middle of the night, uh, uh, everywhere, anywhere. Um, and, and so until, until Ukraine can actually prosecute the war properly and, and knock out Russian command and control centers, logistics spaces, wherever they are, they're going to be at a disadvantage. And I think I think the problem ultimately is conceptual, is that what is the US's idea, the White House's idea of Ukrainian victory? You know, is it, is it all of its territory back, some of its territory back? Does it include Crimea? And, and I think they need to kind of figure that out because I, I Putin is not going to stop until he's stopped. So, so really... Uh, you know, we have to do everything we can to help help Ukraine now. Uh, one of the problems, just my other point, is that uh, basically in the 21st century, most European countries kind of wound down d 
defense spending and production. They weren't really thinking there's going to be a land war um, and, uh, you know, budgets were cut. I mean, the, the British army, which used to be huge, is, is rather small. And I was talking to one very, very senior former British military officer about this. And I said, why, why don't we give Ukraine more artillery shells? Because they're always short of ammunition. And he said, over a cup of coffee in London, we don't make them. And I said, well, okay, uh, what, about, what about tanks? You know, the UK is sending 14, has sent 14 Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine. I said, why only 14? I said, it's not actually very impressive across the 600-mile front line. And he said, well, we've only got 100. About half of them don't work, and the rest are being used for training purposes. So it's actually quite generous. And that's the problem, is that these European countries on paper, which have significant armies, actually don't. They don't. Um, and that, that's proving increasingly problematic as the war goes on. No, the, uh, what has been very revealing in this conflict is, you know, you, you've mentioned it, the running down of the military industrial base of every country around the world. And essentially the, the US has been operating almost like an arms dealer for the Ukrainians trying to get them the shells that they need because they're expending a huge number of shells in the battlefield, more than the world can currently produce. And there are new factories coming online, but most of those factories don't come online until the early parts of 2024, if not the mid of 2024. So we're somewhere around six to 12 months away from the world catching up. And so therefore, yeah, you're right. The, 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 you know, whilst the big story has been uh, Ukraine being assisted by the West with its weaponry, the, the, the story around bullets is actually a, a really fascinating one and one that the world needs to examine more generally about its capability to fight wars of this magnitude um, because it is the biggest war we've seen in a long time, but it actually only involves two countries, right? So it's, um, it, I think it's been very revealing for a lot of military planners. And so, yeah, not to put you on the spot, but I will. How does this conflict end in your mind? Ukrainian victory, the, the, you know, can Ukraine win, take back all its territory? Does Putin's theory hold out that he can outlast the West and Donald Trump gets elected or something like that and then suddenly there are no more weapons? It's a frozen conflict that never really quite ended but broadly becomes a, you know, a, a non, no longer kinetic war. What, what's your vision of a, of a peace, Luke? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I mean, I read a book about Donald Trump and Russia called Collusion, which was the number one New York Times great book. And I, Actually, one of my favourite books. One of my favourite books. A great book. I still, I still get hate mail on a, pretty much on a daily basis from Trump supporters. <laughs> Badge of honour, mate. <laughs> who are sincere but not very good at spelling, uh, ah. who, who send me abuse. So I, I think it would be foolhardy to suggest that, that he won't come back. I mean, it, it, it's possible. We, we live in such a sort of surreal and capricious world. Who, who, who knows? I mean, that, that would be a disaster for Ukraine because American military assistance would stop. You can see a bloviating Trump saying that uh, he can do a deal and that deal would probably involve Ukraine surrendering large amounts of territory to the Russians, uh, which isn't going to happen. I, I think the reality is that Ukraine may be able to take back some more territory this, this year, uh, but certainly won't be able to take back all of it. There's a question mark over Crimea. I think, paradoxically, Crimea might be easier to take back or at least squeeze to the point where it's no longer viable. They can keep on hitting the bridge. Uh, but, but in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, the, these sort of twin cities run by puppet administrations since 2014, Russian supply lines are very close. I mean, Luhansk is, you know, the, the Russian border is kind of 20-minute drive away. Um, so it's going to be very, very hard to get those territories back. Um, I, I wouldn't say impossible, but, but, but basically Putin thinks he can win. Uh, for Ukrainians, they have to keep on fighting. Otherwise, they, 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 are, they become slaves and, the, and their country disappears. Um, and as you say, Putin is reckoning that the West will flake sooner or later, that you know, Australia, the UK, Germany, France, there'll be political changes and headwinds and uh, that, that he can prevail. But I think what we can say for sure is that this is going to be a long war. I, I, I wonder, it's already been going on since 2014. I, I wonder whether it's got another decade to run. I mean, that sounds incredibly pessimistic, but it's certainly not going to finish this year. I would be surprised if it finishes next year. The Ukrainians perfectly understand that if even in 
the unlikely that Putin signs a peace deal, he would violate it within five minutes and, and blame Ukrainians and use any peace deal as an opportunity to regroup, re- rearm and, and have another go. Uh, I, I, the, the sort of the, the mystery fact, I mean, is, is Moscow. Uh, the Prigozhin coup was quite a chastening moment for the Kremlin. Like I said, it's, it's weaker than it appears. And I, I wonder whether the, answer to the war ultimately is not on the battlefield, but on the political situation in Moscow. But when that happens, I don't know. I, I'm banned from the Russian Federation. I was kicked out in 2011. I was formally put on a blacklist last summer by the Russian foreign ministry. But I have a vision of myself, Misha, on a Zimmer frame at some point, wheeling over the cobbles of Red Square, walking to the Lubyanka, <laughs> headquarters of the FSB, KGB, and in a cheerful voice in my best Russian, asking you to see the KGB FSB secret file on me and, and perhaps writing my last book about what's inside it. That, that's my fantasy. Uh, that's a good so, one. Yeah. I like that fantasy. I, uh, well, as someone that's also, I'm not, a, I'm not nearly as like quadruple sanctioned as you are for various, various crimes against Putin's regime, but I'm on the list there with you. So my very thin file consider next to your rather large, no doubt taking up many, many bookshelves, uh, files on on Luke Harding, but um, look, I, I, for what it's worth, I mean, I still see a, a situation. Now, I agree with you. If, if, it, if it continues as is, then it's going to be a very long war. The simplest way out of this is for Putin to get removed, and the simplest way for that to happen, I think, is a battlefield route, which I think with low morale is possible. And if the Ukrainians can stage before Christmas some kind of military success in and around the south, say Melitopol around the south, and then blow up the Kirsch Bridge and really put the squeeze on Crimea, that might be enough to finally make those who are propping Putin up to say, you know what, enough's enough. That's my theory of the case. Um, we'll see. I, I was getting very cocky, Luke, um, in those few hours when Prigozhin was charging up the uh, expressway on his way to Moscow. I was like, see, I bloody told you all. So, um I, I had to suddenly say, well, it's still coming, but uh, that I, I can still see that. And, and that's my great hope, mate. And I do hope that one day uh, you and I can both head into a, a free and democratic and, and, and decent Russia one day alongside a very thriving and free Ukraine. Now, before you go, mate, this has been a very serious conversation, notwithstanding our, uh, our swearing. Um, the rather lame question I ask all our guests now, I know you'd be horrified during Ashes season as a Brit to ask me um, which, you know, to sorry, answer this question about which three Australians you would have at a barbecue with Luke Harding. I'm assuming one of them would not be Australia's wicketkeeper, uh, but um, who are they, mate, and why? Yeah, so I, I've been giving this question a little bit of thought. Um, back in 2014, I interviewed Peter Carey, the, the great Australian novelist um, in, in London. He had a book out called Amnesia, which was um, kind of loosely his, his kind of take on, on, uh, on, on the WikiLeaks saga on uh, Australia being a planned yeah. state of America. Uh, and I thought Peter was an interesting, complex, brilliant figure and i you know but i i did a long profile for the guardian of, of him read his book read some of his previous books and i i think the the true history of the kelly gang which was the sort of cusp novel published in 2000 between one millennium and the next um is is one of the best works of fiction that, that i've ever read i mean he's a stupendous talent i mean he lives in new york rather than australia but if he could come to the barbecue he would be great right um Am I allowed a Ukrainian living in Australia? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll grant you that. Why not? <laughs> okay, so I would invite Vassal, the oh, Ukrainian yes. ambassador to Australia, New Zealand, who's who's a, a friend of yours and someone I know a little bit, would, but would like to know better. I, I met him a while ago, but he's he's a bright, engaged, interesting uh, guy who's been doing tireless public diplomacy. Um, on behalf of Ukraine and trying to kind of nudge the Australian government to be a bit more committed, a bit more engaged to provide Bushmasters and other masters and, and actually to step up. Uh, so I would like to kind of talk to him about the counteroffensive where he sees Ukraine um, and perhaps some of his off the record conversations with senior Australian politicians 
And finally, I'd quite like to invite Bonnie Malkin, who, who's my Australian colleague. She's the editor-in-chief of Guardian, uh, Guardian Australia. Um, I see her on Skype occasionally. She messages me at ridiculous times of day when I'm in Ukraine, four in the morning, five in the morning. Uh, she seems bright. Guardian Australia is doing very well. I think it's eclipsed the Sydney Morning Herald uh, as a kind of news organization. Um, not the Australian Financial Review, though, mate. Nothing can top that. Not the Australian Financial Review, which which is 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 a is a is a you know peer without equals. <laughs> um, but I, I but you know Slava Ukraina, Slava Guardian Australia. I, I'd, I'd like to talk to her as well. No, that's uh, that'd be a fantastic group, and uh, a shout out to Ambassador Vasil, whom everybody dearly loves. A friend of this uh, podcast as well. He's been a previous guest uh, on the show. But look, Luke, we could you and I could talk. Uh, you know, all night about you know the travails of this conflict and and what it all means over uh, over uh, vodkas and various other things, mate. But look, thank you so much for your time. I know that you've been doing outstanding work uh, for the Guardian um, inside of Ukraine and reporting on this awful war. And and thank you for you know, all the work that you've done, mate. It's been you know, someone you're someone that I read and and follow very closely. And uh, your book's outstanding. If you want to give a quick plug where people can get the book Invasion, mate. Yeah, it's published by uh, Faber. It, it's available in good bookshops everywhere. Uh, there's a new paperback edition, um, which you should be able to get in Australia as well. It was shortlisted for for the 2023 Orwell Prize, which is Britain's most prestigious award for political writing. And I'm in Lviv because I'm doing a presentation tonight. It's just been translated and there's a new Ukrainian edition. Uh, and it's a, a privilege to to bring the book to Ukraine and to talk to Ukrainians about their own. No, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, and that's what makes all the work really gratifying, mate. So, you know, I know all the Ukrainians are very uh, grateful to the work that you're doing. So anyway, I'll let you get back to the task, my friend, but uh, uh, keep at it and Slava Ukraina. Slava, Goram Slava. Thanks, Misha. Great to talk to you. G'day, Diplomates fans. Uh, thanks so much to Luke. For coming on the show uh if you haven't already already done so get yourself a copy of invasion it's an outstanding book be sure to follow luke on twitter read his stuff in the guardian you really learn a lot from his outstanding journalism a lot more than you learned from me reading my stuff or listening to this podcast so i'm sure you you learn a lot of that episode um you know just absolutely stellar journalist and, and a real big inspiration to those of us who follow his work um now it's been a while since I've done an episode, so I apologize. Obviously, I've been in Ukraine, a number of other things happening. I've got a few questions that I'm going to quickly rattle through because they've stacked up. First one is, Misha, do you still think Vladimir Putin is likely to be replaced as Russia's leader? I actually got this one before the Prigozhin uh, push or failed push or not a coup, whatever you want to call it. So, look, yes, I'd still think he will. Uh, for all the reasons I already talked about with Luke, I think he's going to get necked. When, when I don't know. I still think it's likely this year. So let's see. Something tells me it's likely to happen. Second question is, Misha, are you as confident that Donald Trump won't be the US president in 2024? Short answer, no. Uh, look, my gut still says I don't think... I can't see him winning a general election. And my gut, notwithstanding the polling, and as bad as... DeSantis is hopeless as a candidate, but... Something tells me that he's not going to get the nomination when when push comes to shove. But um, look, you know, the polling seems to be in his favour. And then if you then went, well, look, most of these elections are decided in three states by like ten to thirty thousand people. Um, it doesn't give me enormous confidence. If you want to go get really worried, have a read about what those around Donald Trump have got planned for a second Trump presidency in terms of dismantling the U.S. bureaucracy. Uh, the tools of state, making everything subordinate to the US presidency, including the justice system and other things. It's quite chilling and concerning. In 2016, the whole thing was a bit of a mistake and they weren't ready for it. This time they're ready and there is an army of really some dark people um, with dark intentions surrounding Trump. So second Trump presidency will be far, far, far worse Um in fact, it would likely send the United States um, into the realms of what you would call any liberal democracy and, and really profound implications for the world, really. So 
white knuckle stuff the next 18 months um last question misha should australia join nato <laughs> it's a good question firstly i don't think we're being asked to join nato much like the ukrainians we haven't received an invitation um uh i, I struggle to see a scenario where we would ever join nato but it's interesting because you're going to see more and more coordination between NATO and other countries, certainly what they call the Indo-Pacific Four, which is Australia, New Zealand, Korea, and Japan, have been invited to the last couple of meetings. I think that'll become regular. Um, and I think going forward, the world needs some kind of platform for democratic nations to get together on a global basis. The, you know, these conflicts are now, and this struggle is global. It's beyond just what's happening in Europe. And NATO is obviously a really focused on Europe, plus the United States, transatlantic. But given that Xi Jinping and Putin have held hands and made that authoritarian struggle global, it makes sense for NATO, who really is the world's preeminent democratic alliance structure, to serve as the perhaps a core or nucleus for a broader concerted democratic effort. Now, whether or not NATO is the platform, it's the most likely platform. You know, you've got the OECD, well, that's economics. You've got the G7, there's been talk of expanding that into maybe a D10, which Australia would be a member of. You've got the Quad, you've got AUKUS, but there's nothing that's really quite global and specifically military in focus. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's formal, coordination with NATO makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so it, it's an interesting proposition, but um, not likely to happen anytime soon, but something like that increasingly will, uh, I think, be practice if not structure. Anyway, uh, that's a very long and uh, complex answer there to a, a relatively interesting question. But anyway, look, thank you once again for everyone listening. If you're new to the program, please uh, rate, review us, subscribe to the show. And until next time, talk to you soon. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.